Uh, if you have a Bible, I would certainly invite you to open it to James chapter number one. Uh, James chapter number one. We've uh, we've read through um, at this point. We've read through Luke and we've read through Acts chapter fourteen um, in our Bible reading plan. And we've made it through the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We have officially, as of today, if you're a morning reader or a daytime reader, then you're, you're with me. Um, if you're a nighttime reader, then you will finish it tonight. Uh, but we have officially read through the book of James. Now, I've had many questions about why we stopped reading in the middle of Acts to start reading the, the letter of James. Now, this is, of course, a good question. I'm going to try my best just kind of briefly to give you a little bit of historical context to explain why we jumped from Acts 14 uh, to uh, the book of James. James is believed to be the first book written in the New Testament. Now, don't mistake it as the first events of the New Testament. That's not the case. We know that the events of the gospel and the events of the early church happened before the letter of James. But as far as the date of the actual writing, it is believed that James wrote his letter before any other New Testament document was written. Now, the reason why James happens between Acts 14 and Acts 15 is because of the date of the writing of James and because James does not mention Gentile believers nor the Jerusalem Council. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Jerusalem Council, you're going to read about it pretty soon in Acts chapter 15. So just hold on and you'll read more about it. But because these two events are not mentioned, which by the way, say, Danny, why does it matter about these two events? Well, Gentile believers being accepted into the church and the argument over whether or not they should be were such large events that had they happened, certainly James would have written about those events. So it is believed that the book of James was written before Gentiles were accepted into the church and before the Jerusalem Council where they argued about Gentiles being uh, accepted into the church. This is why we read through the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, and before the Gentiles are explained about how they've received Jesus, before the Jerusalem Council takes place, insert the book of James, because had it happened after, we would have heard about those two things. So, say, Danny, I don't really care about that. That's okay. Just wanted to give you a little context of why we jumped from Luke to Acts to now James, and we're going to jump back into Acts. It's because the Bible reading plan is doing its best historically to follow a chronological order of what's happening in the life of the church. Now, there's a huge debate about who wrote the letter of James. If you were guessing who is the author of this book, who would you say? James is the author, right? I hope you would say that. Obviously, we know that it's James. The question is, which James from this time period is actually writing this letter? Now, you may believe this or not, but James is a somewhat common name. So many people would have went by the name James. Because it was such a common name in Jewish tradition, it makes this a little more challenging. However, there are two Jameses in particular that would have been considered 
famous and distinguished enough in the early church to be considered the writers of this letter. The first one would be probably the first James that pops in your mind. This is the son of Zebedee. This is the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. This is one of the twelve apostles of Jesus. This James, however, is unlikely to be the author of this book. The reason is because, if you remember in our readings just before Acts chapter 14, something happens to this James. Does anybody remember? He dies, right? And so if he was martyred so early in the life of the church, it's unlikely that he had enough time to write a letter. So the second James that would have been most prominent at this time with the Apostle James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's also known as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Anybody know the nickname for the church of Jerusalem? First Baptist Jerusalem. Come on. Everybody knows that, right? James is the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. He is most likely and historically, traditionally, most accepted to be the author of this book. Now, there are several reasons for this. We won't go into great detail about that. Verbal parallels, Jewish character that fills the pages of this writings. There's a lot of things that point toward James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem, being the author of this particular letter. However, the author isn't as important as the contents of the letter. James teaches us something that I believe in our culture has been long forgotten. Here is James's major theme in his writings. Christian belief must be accompanied by Christian behavior. I'm going to say that again. Christian belief must be accompanied by Christian behavior. In other words, James was not satisfied with you saying one thing and doing another. We would call this hypocrisy in our day and time. James would say there's no such thing as hypocrisy. You either do the word or you don't do the word. You either follow Jesus or you don't follow Jesus. He marries belief with behavior, which, by the way, in the church, in our culture, seems to be something forgotten. It's believed that this book is likely written from Jerusalem, of course, before Gentiles have been accepted into the church. Therefore... The contents of the book of James have a very heavy Jewish narrative. Most of the believers, at least at this point in time, the only believers that were assumed to exist were those who had come from Judaism. And so everything that James writes in the, in the early church life is heavily impacted by Jewish law and Jewish tradition. Now, some have suggested that James is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. The reason is because of the similarities between what James writes in connection to what Jesus preached on the mountainside. Now, it's possible James was there. His siblings were often around when he was doing miracles. We know this from the context of the New Testament, when at one point they called Jesus crazy and wanted him to stop. In that context, Jesus said, Y'all aren't even my mother and my brothers. Everybody who follows God is my mother and brothers and father. Right? There's that interesting statement. His brother probably was there. So it's likely that this could be some kind of commentary on something that Jesus has taught. It's considered to be, this letter of all the New Testament writings, it's 
considered to be the most practical manual for Christian living in the New Testament. So if you're thinking, Danny, how can I be a better follower of Jesus? What's some practical advice that you would give me to live my life like Christ? Here's what I would tell you. You don't need my commentary. You don't need me to tell you anything. Open up the book of James, and in a short amount of time, you can read it from front to back, and you will learn plenty of practical advice on how to follow Jesus. What's most interesting about the letter of James is that even though it's believed to be the earliest writing, it was the last to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. This is interesting. For years and years and years, James was rejected as part of the New Testament. It was not until later in the canon that James was considered to be the inspired Word of God, mostly because of the heavy Jewish Old Testament-like language. But here's what we know today. James is a great letter inspired by the Holy Spirit to challenge us to walk like Jesus. So tonight, we're going to spend just a little bit of time together in the book of James. Now there's an old story that's told about two brothers. I don't know if the story is true. By its contents, I would think that it's not. One of the brothers was an incurable optimist. The other was an incurable pessimist. No matter what you did to the one child, his spirit could not be broken. And no matter what you did to the other child, his spirit could not be lifted up. So one Christmas, the parents of these two brothers tried to bring to bear some correctives on these two extreme attitudes that were displayed. For the pessimists, they bought Christmas gifts that anticipated his every wish, hoping that this would generate a more sunny disposition in their angry child. Conversely, they would give the optimistic child nothing but a bag of horse poop. On Christmas morning, the pessimistic boy opened a box that contained a magnificent electric train set. In response, he said with disappointment, it probably won't last. Another box contained a brand new stereo. He complained again, I don't have any CDs to play on this thing. Now I look at my crowd and realize we know what CDs are. I would have to change this illustration a little bit for a younger crowd, right? This went on and on. Every gift he got, elaborate, beautiful, what every kid wanted, but every time he had the same disappointment, the same type of response. On the other hand, when the optimistic child opened up his bag and found the horse poop in it, he started shouting and jumping up and down with joy. So the father, like any father would do, he looks at his son and he's like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so happy? That's a box of horse poop. The child shouted back with excitement. I know it's a box of horse poop. So I know there's got to be a pony around here somewhere. <laughs> Listen, I know it's a silly story. But I think it really helps us with the context of what we're going to look at in James tonight. It helps us understand the importance of perspective. How do we look at the events that are happening in our lives? Do we see them as God at work in us? 
Or do we see them as the end of the world with no end in sight? What if I told you that the bag of poop might really be a pony? As a matter of fact, I put this up because the guys told me having poop on the stream while we were eating probably is not a good idea, but this is really my title for tonight. A bag of poop. You say, Dan, that's really crude. I know, I'm kind of crude, so I apologize for that. Just bear with me that I did youth ministry for 18 years, all right? Poop would have gotten a lot of chuckles for a little while in the crowds that I normally faced. Danny, why are we talking about poop? Well, here's why. It's pretty simple. Really, it is. Life gives us poop all the time. I don't have to explain that to you in the room. You've experienced it plenty more times than what I can illustrate or what I can explain to us who are here. And we can whine about those various trials or those various boxes of poop. Or we can look around and see that God's at work in all things making us more like Him. The question that James presents to us tonight is which one will you do? How will you look at the life that's around you? And here's what James does. He gives us some advice on how to deal with the bags of poop. How to deal with the various trials that we face in this life. He gives us some things to remember so we can trust God in the middle of our trials. I want to show you a few of those. And I just want us to look at them together and just think about your own experience and how much different trials become when we look at them through the same lens that God looks at them. Here's the first one. James teaches us that trials produce growth. Here's what he writes. This is James chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I want to pause for a moment. Because I don't know if you catch this on the front end, but James begins this conversation about trials with a really interesting statement. He says, count it all joy. Now the context of this discussion is nothing new to any person in this room. Life is filled with what James calls trials of various kinds. Now the word for trials, it can mean several things. It can mean tests, it can mean trials, it can mean temptations, it can mean troubles, it can mean tribulations, it can mean a lot of things. The word for various means diversified, or literally, if you break the word down, it means many-colored. In other words, there's a lot of them. I think James is referred to all of these different things. It could be different trials. It could be different temptations. It could be different tests. But here's what he reminds us of. God can and will use any trial to accomplish his goal for our life. What's significant in this moment is that James tells us to be happy about them. In other words, James is telling us that when life gives us a bag of poop, and listen, it's not if you meet, but when you meet various trials. I heard it put one time like this, that 
Trials aren't electives in God's school. They're required courses. You are going to experience them. You should be jumping with joy when they come your way. Because God has allowed you this great fortune. Now, how many of us respond to trials like that? How many of us look at them and go, Woohoo! So thankful for this season again, God. I know you're producing something in me. Thank you, Lord, for building the type of character that I need in such a painful and harsh way. No, it's not typically our response, right? The word for count is an imperative. James is commanding his readers, not suggesting that they count it all joy. Don't forget, James is writing about belief crossing roads with behavior. He's saying, if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then you believe everything that happens to you is going to accomplish the very plans of God in your life. He's saying, don't just believe it, behave that way. He's saying, realize these trials produce growth in you that maybe nothing else could. question I think that comes to my mind is how? How do we count it all joy? Why should we count it all joy? What if I don't want to count it all joy? Well, this is why focusing on the goal that God is accomplishing is so important. Matter of fact, listen to this from the writer of Hebrews. He, he writes this in Hebrews 12 too. He says, looking to Jesus, which by the way, side note here, always good advice when you're trying to figure out what to do next. Look to Jesus. Here's what he says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, don't miss this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself endured much more than any of our trials will ever cost us. He endured way more, and he counted it joy to be able to experience the cross and the shame. James reminds us that those trials of various kinds, that testing of your faith is producing something in you. You say, Danny, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. The, the, the test at work, it's breaking me down. The, the temptation that I keep facing, it's, it's, it's wearing me out. That trial with my family, that tragedy that I can't cope with, these tribulations are getting too hard to handle. Friend, I can tell you right now, I can look you in the eyes and I can tell you this, I don't understand. But I can also tell you this, God does. He's at work to accomplish His goals in your life. Your focus has to remain on what He's up to. Listen to how Peter put it. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. He said, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about followers of Jesus. He says, In this you rejoice. In this. You ready? Here it is. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoice is the word that Peter uses. Joy is the word that James uses. Listen, we could go to example after example. There's probably none better than Job. 
God allowed the devil himself to go after Job. We know his struggles. We're amazed at how he made it through any of them. And to be honest, the only way that he ever could was to focus on God producing something in his life. I think about Paul and Silas. We're going to read about them pretty soon in Acts chapter 16. They've been sharing their faith in Jesus. They've been seeing hundreds come to know Christ. And because of it, guess what they got? A prison sentence. And instead of whining, and instead of complaining, instead of moaning about the chains that are wrapped around them, you know what they did? They started pounding them chains on the ground until it made a beat that they could start singing choruses to heaven saying, Jesus, thank you. And at midnight, they're not whining. They're not crying out, oh God, why would you let this happen? They are praising the name of Jesus for being counted worthy to suffer for His name. You know why? Because God was producing something in them. The word that James uses for testing can mean proof or it can mean genuine. It's like when the purity of something is tested by fire. Does the fire hurt? Absolutely. Can we see its purity any other way? No. What if we look at everything in our life as a way for God to make us more genuine for Him? What if we looked at all our trials and all our tests and all our temptations as a way in which God is displaying proof in our life that He's at work in us? Producing what, Danny? James uses the word steadfastness. I love this word. It means literally to remain under. Remain under what? Thank you for asking. All those trials are producing a life that remains more under the authority of Jesus. The one, by the way, who you submitted your life to. You gave him the authority in your life. You made him king. And every trial, every way that God's testing us, every moment to be purified and to be proven as genuine is another opportunity for us to submit our lives to the will of Jesus and say, yes, God, produce in me whatever you want. God, I'm just the clay. You're the potter. You mold me however you see fit. And when that happens, more and more you become, as James writes, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know what the word perfect means? It carries the idea of a finished work. You know what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.6? Listen to it. And I am sure of this that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, to perfection, at the day of Jesus Christ. You say, Danny, you mean all these things I'm dealing with is just another way for God to mold me into what He wants? Absolutely. You say, Danny, even when something bad happens, is that what God wants? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is, is that He'll use that bad thing. He'll use that trial. He'll use that moment where you did something dumb. He'll use that moment where you responded in a way you shouldn't have. He'll use that moment that embarrassed you that you thought you could never come back from. He will use that moment to purify and purify and purify until you are under the authority of Jesus to a point where people see the perfect representation of Him in you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it always feels good. But trials produce growth. Listen, Job knew this. Paul and Silas knew this. 
They knew that though their trials were difficult and certainly not what they would have chosen, it was all considered joy because of the goal that God was accomplishing in and through their lives. You remember this one? This one's famous. We all know this one. It makes us feel good. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You say, Danny, even trials... Even the hurtful things? Absolutely. He says all things work according to His purpose. Let me show you this next one. A couple other things that James tells us about. That first one was the longest one. It really sets the stage. Kayla, Kayla picks on me sometimes. She said if I wouldn't spend so much time on the first one, we'd all get out of here a little quicker. But I just wanted you to know, I need to say this for her sake, that one took a minute. I didn't mean for it to. The Lord did that when He wrote James 1, 2-4. Alright? Second thing I want you to see. Trials, they, they produce growth without a doubt. Trials also promote guidance. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look back at James 1. Look at verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Anybody in a room like that? Go ahead. Don't be scared. Anybody in a room like that? Who <laughs> likes wisdom? Yeah, me too, right? I feel like what James is trying to do, he's trying to be nice. And instead of saying, hey, since all of you lack wisdom, here's what you need to do. He says, hey, no, no, no. Not, not because all of you do. But let me just, if any of you does, you know, happen to. Lack wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now what's interesting about this moment is that James just told them that trials will help them lack nothing. Well, if they lack nothing, why should they be asking for wisdom? Well, I think the point that James is making is that because trials hit us, we realize how much we lack, and in those moments, it pushes us to ask of God what we do not have on our own. Think about the moments where you experienced extreme trouble. And though you wish your entire life you had been calling out to God, I guarantee one thing that's true of every person that finds themselves at the bottom. They all call out to God. You say, Danny, could it be that trials push us, promote us to ask for the guidance of God in our lives? Absolutely. Which is why James tells us, if you do lack it, ask of Him who gives generously. When we face various trials, it will open opportunities for us to lean in toward God because He is all we have. You say, Danny, I don't have the ability to deal with that. That's why we need God. We realize even more our need for Him and we seek His wisdom. Here's what happens for me. God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know how to deal with it. Will you give me the wisdom to see this through your eyes? God, I don't even care if you let everybody else know that I don't know how to deal with it. I don't care if you really do show them. You know what? Stop asking Danny. He has no idea either. God, you know we don't know. Will you give us the wisdom that we need. Don't miss what James reminds us of. If any of you lacks wisdom. In other words, all of you who lack wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. This is exactly what happens in 1 Kings chapter 3. I don't know how familiar you are with that. I don't expect you to have the Bible memorized. But this is the moment in time where Solomon becomes the new king. David is gone, the hero of the Jewish faith. He's gone. 
His son has to take over his reign. He is not much older than my own son. He's just a child. He doesn't know what to do. You know what the context of 1 Kings chapter 3 is? It's Solomon going, God, you know I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. You know what God did? Made him the wisest man who ever lived. Then God doesn't give generously to those who ask. James goes on, look at verse 6. He says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He goes on, right? This asking that you do, do it in faith with no doubting. Listen, there are so many moments where God demands this type of faith from His people. We could talk about Moses when he faced the Red Sea on the front and the Egyptian army behind him. We could talk about David fighting Goliath with nothing more than a sling and a few stones. We could think about Abraham as he's described in Romans chapter 4 when referring to his faith in God, giving him Isaac in his old age. I love what Paul writes. He says this, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Now listen, just focus for a moment. If God said something incredible relied on your body in this room right now, how many of your faith starts weakening a little bit? I don't mind us. I go, God, if you're relying on this, we're in trouble, right? Not Abraham. He's old. No one else thinks it can happen. This should not be the story of his life. Everything else points to doubt, but not Abraham. His faith was not weakened when he considered his own body, which, this is Paul's description, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Now, I heard that Abraham being 100 years old at this time is like somebody being 50 today. That was a joke. because it's <laughs> Wow, that one. <laughs> that one didn't work. <laughs> his faith didn't weaken when he considered his own body or... Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen, I don't ask for a lot of things about my testimony, but I don't care if anybody knows anything about anything that I did that was significant in any other way except for this. Danny did not waver in his faith, but gave glory to God. Listen, God doesn't make promises He won't keep. When He says He will give you wisdom if you ask in faith, let me tell you something, friends. Ask Him, because He will do it. James goes on, verses 7 and 8, for that person's same context. He's just pointing to people. Man, it promotes guidance. It promotes, seek God, seek God. He says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. This is the one who doubts. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, double-minded is an interesting word. It literally means double-souled. It has been speculated, I don't know how true this is, but it's been speculated that this is the first time this word is found in Greek literature. I'm not talking about in the Bible. I'm talking about anywhere in Greek literature up until this time. You know what that means? Most people think James made up this word just for this purpose. He's talking about a divided loyalty. 
You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the same problem every one of us in this room have. He's talking about that old fleshly life that divides our attention away from God. Right? God's wanting us to seek Him. He's wanting us to ask Him for wisdom. He's wanting us to come to Him in faith so that He can receive glory when He pours out His abilities on this people. He's wanting it. But you know what happens instead? That old flesh gets in the way and we start relying on ourselves. We start reverting back to our old ways. We start thinking we got enough to do it on our own. You know what it's like? It's like the cane farmers down in South America. They got a little trick for catching monkeys that try to destroy their farm. I don't know if you ever heard about this little trick. They set out all these little logs all around their farm and they cut holes in the logs. And inside the logs, they put sugar in there. And the hole's just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in there. But if he grabs the sugar, his fist can't come out. The only way he can be free is to let the sugar go. You know what happens? They die every time. You know why? They won't let the sugar go. Hey, friends, I don't know if that hits home for you, but that sounds like my life most days. God's given me more than I could ever imagine if I will just let go. Don't be double-minded. God says He'll give you wisdom. And when you face the greatest trials of your life, here's what you need to remember. Not only is He developing something incredible in you, producing something in you that may not be able to be produced in any other way. Listen to me, friends. He's promoting guidance as He's pushing you to seek Him with every fiber of your being. Is that your story? Do you seek Him? Him. Listen, that's what trials do. They promote guidance when we trust God in the midst of every single one of them. Let me show you this third thing. I'm getting there, I promise. Trials, this is my, this is my favorite one. I can't wait for you to see it because I, I didn't write this one. I got some help. Trials pervade. That's right. You heard it right. <laughs> trials pervade Globally. You now you <laughs> country of origin. <laughs> the smell of Matthew pervades this entire room. <laughs> Amen, Thompson. So I, I, I really like for these things to match because they look better on an outline and they're easier for me to remember. Alright? Plus just traditionally, I grew up with some of the best alliterating preachers of any day and time. And so I was struggling this morning to ask Kayla to help me. I'll tell on her. She didn't give me pervade. Um, but I came in the office and I was like, i got to have something. i got to have something. So Evan said, why don't you use the word pervade? And I said, you know what? Just because that will be funny enough for everybody to write down on their outline, there it is. Trials pervade globally. Now there is a point. Look at verse 9. James goes on. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here's how we know trials pervade globally. Because it doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich. Trials come to the door of every person. You know what I'm saying? Bad things are not just hiding behind a bush at your house because you got bad luck. That's not true. You can think that. That's fine. 
You're not just a poor unfortunate soul that for some reason the entire universe is against you. You might think that, but that's not true. I don't care if you're at the top. I don't care if you're at the bottom. Trials pervade everywhere. It doesn't matter. They're going to affect every person. Jesus puts both groups together, the rich and the poor, in a very famous parable, the parable of the sower. Now you remember this parable. You've probably heard it taught before. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus teaches His disciples that the farmer goes out and he throws seed. And the seed falls on several different types of soils. And depending on what soil the seed falls on, that depends on the growth of the seed. And the disciples are confused by it, and then Jesus helps them understand what He's meaning about the Word of God falling out on different people's lives, and the people who accept Him, and the people who reject Him. But in one of those moments, He says these words. This is Matthew 13, 22. He says, As for what was sown among thorns, that's one of the, the, the soils, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. They say, Danny, what's Jesus talking about? Well, the cares of this world represent the poor who have to worry about the basic necessities of life. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They can't think of anything else. Even if they've heard the word of Jesus, even if their life can be turned upside down, they can't think about anything else because they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They're distracted, right? Rightfully so, but they are. The deceitfulness of riches represents the rich. Who, by the way, think that nothing can get them. They've been tricked into thinking their wealth can save them. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter which side you fall on. Trials are going to come to anybody, no matter where you are. There's nothing better or worse about being rich or poor. Both have their own trials. Listen to this from Proverbs chapter 30. It says, remove far from me falsehood and lie. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Psalmist says, I don't want either one of them. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? <laughs> or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. You know what he's saying? If I'm rich, I'll find a way to abuse you. If I'm poor, I'll find a way to abuse you. He says, God, give me just what I need so that nothing else distracts my life from you. Listen, there's one thing that never changes with trials. You can't live without them. You say, Danny, but I want to live without them. I agree. Most of the time I do too. But listen, friends, I don't care where you go, how far you try to get away, no matter what you do to avoid them, you will see them because trials are everywhere. They pervade globally. Look at this last thing. I only have four. That's the good news. Bad news is I had four. Trials promise glory. Say, Danny, what do you mean? I love what happens in verse number 12. This is where it just... Mm. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Say, so Danny, how can I make it? Trials promise glory. 
Hey, how can I deal with this next one? It's just pointing you to glory. How can I deal with this next hurdle? It's just showing you more about how God's going to do something in you you didn't know He was going to do. Just keep looking at it, friend. It's just God at work in your life. One day that crowd will be there and you will not care at all about the trial that you faced whenever you did. Listen, this is how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's what He says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I read a story this week, really put this into perspective. It was shared by a guy named Dr. Howard Hendricks. He was a uh, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he shares this story about a time that he played a, a checkers game against this town's champion checkers player. I don't know how you become the town's champion checkers player, but in this case, the town had one. He was a young fellow at the time, and he was extremely confident of all that he could do that he decided to take on this old veteran that was the champion of the town. He was given the first move, and he decided to set the pace. So after a few moves, his adversary put a piece in the line of fire. Jump me, he demanded. So Hendricks did so, scooping the piece triumphantly off the board. Right, I picture that one moment when the basketball team's down by 30, like LSU gets Ole Miss last week, and they score one basket, and the guy's like, dude, you're down by 30. Like, what are you bragging? Like, what's happening? So he scoops it up. He's happy about it. He thought that he had the game in the bag when his opponent put another piece in jeopardy. Jump me, he said. So Hendricks took the piece, and then it happened. The older man picked up one of his pieces. Jump, 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 jump. His piece raced down the board, scooping up Hendrick's pieces with relentless precision. His piece arrived at king territory, and he said, crown me. After that, young Hendrix didn't have a chance. Piece after piece was pounced on until he had lost them all. Dr. Hendrix, in this moment, made the point. He said, no good checker player minds losing an occasional piece so long as he's heading for king territory. I feel like he was reading out of James' playbook. You know what James is saying about trials? He said, how dare any Christian care about one little lost battle, one little hurt that's not going to mean anything. How dare we think back to the one piece that got sacrificed when we're headed for king territory. He says, one day you're going to receive the crown of life. One day all those things are going to seem so small. You say, Dave, they don't seem small now. I know. Matter of fact, I ate lunch with a guy today. We had a good time. And we kind of reminisced about what it was like as kids moving from town to town. I moved five different schools after my parents got divorced. And every time you move to a new town, you're the new kid. About the time I stopped being the new kid, I moved to a new town and became the new kid. I was never so-and-so's son. You know, I was never the coach's kid. I was never that one who had played the quarterback from the time they were three. Like, I was never that guy. I was always the new kid. And I remember how challenging it was and all the things that I hated about it. And I remember, man, this was just aggravating. We were talking about all those things. And he finally came around and he said, you know what? In that moment, when I was a kid, he said the same things. Like, I remember those. Like, he said, you know what? Now, 
man, all I can think about is how those things made me who I am. But he said something that's so real to us in these moments. He said, but you know what? When it was happening when I was a kid, I thought the whole world was coming to me. Now I look at it and realize it's made me who I am. You know, that's exactly what happens with trials. Every trial should remind you of the glory that awaits those who trust in Jesus. Listen, I'm not saying the trial's not bad. I'm not trying to make light of any situation that you may be going through, that you have been through, and, and by God we know this, you will go through. I'm not making light of it. What I am saying is that the only way we make it through them is if our perspective is like God's and we realize that everything's happening, every piece that's lost, though it is difficult, means so much more when we know where we're headed. Listen, trials are certainly not what any of us are looking forward to. But James helps us to see them as God sees them. He helps us understand that God uses trials for our good. Somebody told me it like this one time. He said, hey, Danny, imagine that I told you that a man's best friend just stabbed him. I mean, just walked up and stabbed him. I was like, man, that, I, I would say we're probably not friends anymore. And he said, well, what if I told you that, that his best friend was actually a doctor and that he was removing his appendix that had just ruptured? Without removing it, he was going to die. He said, listen, just telling you that he stabbed him. He did. He took a knife, stabbed him. I don't know where your appendix is. <laughs> stab him there, wherever that is. That's not cool. You don't stab your friends. Perspective makes a big difference, doesn't it? What if I told you that right now that trial's a knife that's pretty sore, pretty tender? What if I was telling you that God was really using that knife because he needs to carve out some things? He needs to mold you in some ways. He needs to make you something that you can't be on your own. What if I told you that when life gives you a bag of poop, whatever trial that might be, remember there must be a pony, something good that God is up to somewhere. Got to be. These trials are not just because you're an unfortunate soul. God's using everything for every believer so that He can work out and accomplish His plan and purposes in our lives. He never said it'd be comfortable. He never said it'd be easy. But what James does remind us of is that those trials have a purpose. Will we trust God in the trials? I don't know if that's you right now. I don't know what kind of stuff you're dealing with and facing. All I can talk about is me. Can I tell you something? If for nobody else, thank you, James, for putting into perspective what God has been doing for years and years and years. You know what's going to happen? One day we're going to look back. We're going to say, God, thank you for the trials that have made me more like you. Will you trust Him in the middle of the trials?